Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we are going to take a look at two different Kickstarters, The Ultimate Bestiary, Secrets of the Fae by Nord Games, and the Obajima Tales Kickstarter that's going on. Jeremy Crawford says that they're going to revisit classic settings. Let's take a look at that. And Tal'Darai Reborn is now available on D&D Beyond. What does that mean as far as third-party publishing is concerned for products on D&D Beyond? What is the bare minimum you need in order to get prepared for a role-playing game? And we're going to cover more questions from the August 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in role-playing games. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material like the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, and a whole lot more. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. You can find a link for becoming a patron in the show notes. We have a lot to talk about today. There's a lot going on. We only have a couple of Kickstarters to look at today, and I'm not going to spend too much time on them, but I thought that they were worthy of a little bit of attention. The first one is The Ultimate Bestiary Secrets of the Fae. This is by Nord Games. They've done a couple of books previously, including Revenge of the Horde and The Ultimate Bestiary The Dreaded Accursed. I spent some time with The Dreaded Accursed. I've looked through it. I really, really like it. I've got, I've got a copy of it myself, and it's a really cool book of undead. Excellent artwork. Really cool design. If you're looking for books that are focused around a particular type of monster, this is definitely a good way to go. I have worked, Nord has helped me with my own Kickstarters, and I have purchased many, many different Nord products. They make excellent role-playing game products. I really like them. So it's a pretty exciting Kickstarter. A lot of neat things that are going on. You can scroll through and see the sort of different creatures they have. They have the Wild Hunt in here. If you're familiar with The Witcher, you might be familiar with the Wild Hunt. I think that's pretty cool. Definitely a good focus on fae, on fae creatures. No preview, unfortunately, but we have seen a lot of the material that Nord puts out for other ultimate bestiaries. So pretty clear exactly what you're going to get with this. And I'm excited to get it. So that is the, that is the ultimate bestiary secrets of the Fae by Nord games. You can find a link to that in the show notes. The other Kickstarter doesn't really need my help. But I had people that are like, hey, you didn't talk about this. So here I am talking about it. Obajima Tales of the Tall Grass, a 5e campaign setting, is a Studio Ghibli Legend of the Zelda-inspired campaign setting for D&D 5e. Create your own unforgettable narrative in this familiar world. So very popular. 12,600 backers. That's a tremendous, huge number of backers for this Kickstarter. And you know, very anime-style adventures. Kind of got a almost like a Final Fantasy kind of look to it. Looks pretty neat. I don't know if it's exactly my style, which is why I didn't really talk about it before, but clearly lots of people are interested in, the, in this. It looks like it's doing gangbusters. So if you want to check that out, check out the Obajima Tales Kickstarter, Obajima Tales from the Tall Grass Kickstarter down in the show notes below. It's doing gangbusters. What's neat about this is it's its own campaign world that is using the standard core rules for 5e, but it's got new subclasses, new races, a bunch of new spells, new monsters, new magic items, all the kinds of stuff that you would want that is all built around this particular theme. So looks really cool. Definitely a far cry from many of the other campaign settings that we've seen for 5th edition. So it looks really, really cool. You can check that out in the show notes. Elder Brain, who has done Crown of the Oathbreaker and Torrents of the Spell Hoarder. Crown of the Oathbreaker is notable because it's a 900-page book. It is a massive, massive phone book-sized 
huge adventure. And one of the neat things that Elderbrain does is they are a data-driven company that builds their products based on feedback they get from hundreds to thousands of GMs and players who talk about the kinds of adventures they're interested in. And they do these with a big survey. Elderbrain has put out a new survey looking for information to help steer the guidance of the next product they build. Now, one of the things that's notable about their surveys is they release the results of the survey. So it's a long survey. It'll take you some time to fill this out. Lots of detailed questions about the kinds of adventures that you like, the kinds of campaigns you like, the demographics you and of you and where you've come from and how long you've been playing and things like that. But most importantly, they release the results. If you think about it, many times we have other companies that ask us to do polls and surveys and get results, and we never hear back about what happened. We have no idea. And think about the collective amount of time spent on those surveys. It's not nothing. It's it's hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of people's time to fill out these surveys. At least with this survey, we get to see the results and it can help all of us learn more about this hobby. So please check out the, the Elder Brain survey, fill it out. And the cool bit is we will all learn from each other about what kind of adventures we like and where we've come from and what the hobby looks like. It's really neat stuff. So, so take a look at that. You can find a link to the Elder Brain RPG survey in the show notes below. I want to take a quick minute to talk about a new feature of the Sly Flourish Patreon. One of the things I want to do each week on the show is pick one specific thing that the that patrons of Sly Flourish get access to and talk about it. And in this case, it is a brand new thing. So there are two tiers for the Sly Flourish Patreon. The veteran tier, which is the $2 tier, and the hero tier, which is the $4 tier. And the $4 tier, the hero tier was really like, hey, you really like what I'm doing. Honestly, the, the $4 tier is the, the, the right price for the things that I'm giving. The $2 tier is really really cheap for all of the stuff that I'm putting out there. But I don't want to cut it off and I want to give people a, a good accessible option to get all this stuff. But I also wanted to give something a little extra for the hero for the hero tier folks on the Sly Flourish Patreon. So I have started a new podcast that is only for heroes of Sly Flourish for the hero tier of Sly Flourish Patreon called Readings and Reflections with Sly Flourish. The first episode of this is free to everybody. Everybody can try this out. You can listen to it. Uh, you can hear what it's like. And basically every week on Thursdays, I take that Monday's Sly Flourish article, I will read the article, and then I'll go more in depth. I'll talk about where the idea for the article came from, some other ancillary thoughts that come to me when I think about this particular article, different bits of feedback that I received over the week about this article, all kinds of stuff. So it's certainly like a deeper dive into each Sly Flourish article. It's about 10 to 12 minutes long, so it's not a very long podcast, and it's more of an intimate podcast. It's you and me sitting down in comfortable chairs with our favorite drink, having a conversation about this particular article. Really fun to do and really neat. There are now, I think, four episodes that are currently available, four previous episodes. The first one called Give Boss Monsters Awesome Nicknames is available to everybody, so you can listen to it, you can try it out, and if you like it, you can join the Sly Flourish Patreon at the Hero Tier. You get a dedicated RSS feed that you can feed into whatever podcast player you like, so you can listen to it on any device that you like with your own dedicated RSS feed. It's also available on Spotify if you have connected your Patreon and Spotify accounts together. So that way, Spotify knows that you're a patron, knows that you're a patron of this tier, and then therefore you can get that particular podcast. So really fun to do, a new feature dedicated just for Heroes of Sly Flourish. So I hope you will check that out. Again, there is a link to the first episode, which is free for everybody. You can listen to it in the show notes below.
This past week, Jeremy Crawford was interviewed. I guess this was at Gen Con. There was a whole bunch of interviews with different developers from Wizards of the Coast. And Jeremy Crawford did a, either one big interview that got broken up into a series of articles for the website comicbooks.com. And he mentioned, Jeremy Crawford mentioned, that one of the things that they wanted to talk about is that Wizards of the Coast plans to or expects to revisit classic campaign settings such as Planescape, Spelljammer, and Ravenloft. Now, so this is one of my complaints. This, this actually directly addresses one of the complaints that I had, which was I, I don't feel as good about a product like Spelljammer because I felt like it's the missed opportunity that when I look at something like Spelljammer and I compared it to something like Eberron rising from the last war, I looked at Eberron and honestly, as much as I would love to see more Eberron books, that one Eberron book can cover me for the rest of my life. I feel like I could build Eberron campaigns as long as I want to using that one single Eberron rising from the last war book. I did not feel like that about the Planescape or about the Spelljammer book that when I got the Spelljammer box set, I got three 64 page books. One was just an adventure that I ran and now I'm done. One was a monster book and that's fine, but you know, I don't really need that many monsters. And then one was a book where half of it was like character options, new weird character options. A, a good chunk of it was maps of ships. And there was hardly anything to actually build out an honest to God spelljammer campaign. There was no spelljammer campaign setting at all. There was nothing for me to build campaigns in the spelljammer box set. And that's one thing, because you're like, okay, well, then that product didn't land it for me. But I also felt like this is the only one we're going to get for decades. Like, it's been something like 30 years since the last Spelljammer product before this one. So is it going to be another 30 years before I see it again? Will be, this be the last one I will see in my life? I, you know, I'm not sure that that's not the case. So it bothered me that we were seeing these, these retakes of old classic campaign settings that were basically just like a glorified adventure. Dragonlance is another one. I know people are pretty, some people are happy with the Dragonlance adventure. Some people are not, but I think we can all agree. It isn't a campaign setting. It's not a, how to build your own adventures in Dragonlance. It's a Dragonlance adventure. Shouldn't we have a Dragonlance campaign setting as well? Wouldn't that be something that would last on our shelves for a lot longer and sort of build a legacy for something? And there's definitely conspiracy theories saying, oh, well, they don't want you to do that. They don't want to build a book that you can run with for the rest of your life. They want like an adventure that you run and then you're done and you go on to the next thing. Maybe that's true. I mean, he kind of talks about that a little bit in this article where he says things like, hey, we wanted to make sure not to put out so many products that people couldn't keep up. And maybe the idea is if we put out a product that could last you for a decade well then you're never going to buy want to buy another product i mean maybe but it's not serving me for the same money i'll tell you like when i buy eberron rising from the last war and it's 320 pages and it's huge and it's got two 220,000 words in it i can run that forever i want more books like that i want more big chunky campaign books where i could run my own campaigns forever so the article is saying hey we're going to go back and redo that or not redo it. We're going to go back and revisit these campaign settings. And they did with like Ravenloft. We had Curse of Strahd as an adventure. And then we had Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, which I loved. I loved Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. I'd like to see a real Spelljammer campaign. I mean, I guess like now I've run it. And I don't know, but I'd like to see them go back and build source books that are like Ravnica, that are like Eberron, that are like Van Richten's Guide, that have depth to them where I can, that give me a lot of material to build a lot of different potential adventures out of these campaign settings. That's really the kind of product I want. And it's one thing when they put out a product like Big Bees, and by the way, I, I really like Big Bees. I picked up my copy of Big Bees and I've been reading it and I'm gonna preview it next week. I really like it. One of the things I like though is it's not a missed opportunity because anybody can write a book about giants, right? We're none of us are limited by our ability to write about giants. But Wizards of the Coast is the only company in the world that can write a really good 
published Spelljammer book. There's definitely products that are coming out of the DMs Guild, but those are relatively limited because of the huge percentage of the money that drive through RPG and the DM and Wizards of the Coast takes from the product. And also the limited distribution of those means that people can't pour a lot of money, a lot of energy and a lot of time into that because they're not going to make the money back. So the DMs Guild is really only as good as the DM Guild allows for. But generally what that means is like, we're only getting the one. So I hope this is true. And I imagine it's not coming from nowhere. I don't think he's going to say this and there's not going to be anything. But we'll have to see it when it comes out. And my hope is that we see more campaign settings. Maybe because we have the refresh, now is a time where they can kind of go back and build new source books that cover particular areas. We'll see. But so far, Wizards of the Coast seems to be spending a lot of time making adventures, kind of bigger campaign adventures. And those are pretty limited, I think. I think those are more limited than a campaign setting. So we'll see. It was interesting to, for, for him to bring it up. It's interesting to see what he had to say about it. Of course, him saying things and us seeing actual products are two separate things. So we'll have to see what happens. So another big move that Wizards of the Coast has dropped in is the Taldorai Reborn book published by Darrington Press for Critical Role is now available on D&D Beyond. If you go to D&D Beyond, let's pop it up. They now have a new section called Partnered Content. And partnered content appears to be third-party published books that are available on D&D Beyond. So far, I think the Taldorai Reborn book is the first one that's there. We also see like the Rick and Morty's box set, but that was published by Wizards of the Coast. And the, the two other books that Critical Role put out were also published by Wizards of the Coast. This is the first one that's actually fully published by another publisher, in this case, Darrington Press, and available. And you can see, fully integrated into D&D Beyond. And more interesting than just having the information laid out here, they also are available in the character options for the character builder. So you can actually pick up options from the Taldorai Reborn book in your character builder for D&D Beyond. This is a big step. This is a big this is a big thing that's going on. And a lot of people are totally on board with this. They love they love this idea that that now we're starting to see third-party content available on D&D Beyond. A lot of people wanted this. When I was at the summit, when I was virtually at the summit a few months ago, that was something that summit attendees said, is we want to have our ability to publish third-party content on D&D Beyond. And they said that like it was a, a good thing. But if you've listened to me on my show, you know, I don't necessarily feel that way. That I was very happy to see Wizards of the Coast buy D&D Beyond because it meant that all of the Wizards of the Coast material that was on D&D Beyond was safe and secure. They're not going to not have it there. They weren't going to take it away. When D&D Beyond was owned by another company, it was certainly possible that Wizards of the Coast would pull that material back or pull the license back and say, sorry, we don't want you to publish it anymore. You know that that existed. But when they bought it, they'd say, of course, we will now allow it right now it's their own tool right so of course they're going to use dnd beyond to publish wizards of the coast material seems quite obvious this is the first time they've allowed a third-party publisher here what i worry about is that the more material that goes on dnd beyond the more material from other publishers that go to to dnd to beyond the more we are giving one company greater control over the 5e role-playing game industry so when fifth edition came out both under the ogl and under the creative commons license it meant that any company can publish material for fifth edition under those two licenses it means we can publish anything anywhere for that 
piece of it. It meant that no one company could control the whole ecosystem. But the more popular D&D Beyond gets, and the more they start to bring in third-party publishers, it could become the dominant platform for 5e. And that means that Wizards of the Coast has greater control over 5th edition because of D&D Beyond. I'm generally not worried about anything else that Wizards of the Coast does as far as how it could put a stranglehold on the game, except D&D Beyond because of its popularity. And it's popular because it's really good. People like using it. My players like using it. I like using it. It's easy to use. You know, it's a it's a really solid tool for building characters out, for running your characters. The dice thing is really neat. It's a really good tool. So people use it because it's a good tool. The more we see third-party content in there, the more worried I get that that's going to become the dominant tool for everything. Now, already there's big comp competitors to it. Roll20 is a big competitor. Fantasy Grounds is a big competitor. And then there's some other ones that are coming out. But I worry about... Uh, D&D Beyond, I think, is is for 5th edition material, is probably the most popular, or maybe second to Roll20, but it's really, really close. And if they start to bring in more third-party content, the more than third-party contents are going to, more third-party publishers and other 5th edition publishers are going to feel like they have to be there if they want to be anywhere. And if they're there, then they're under the guidance of Wizards of the Coast. And that brings up a whole slew of other potential problems. Because Wizards of the Coast is not only the owner of the platform, they are the dominant producer of 5th edition material. And you're competing with them on their platform. And that brings all kinds of problems to it. So there's definitely, it's not, I don't think it's 100% absolutely, oh, this is awesome. It's such a great thing. I also don't know that this is going to open the floodgates to it. Because it, one thing that I think is really interesting about the Taldorai Reborn book being put on D&D Beyond is, as far as we can tell, this is from a tweet from a D&D Beyond developer who said, I'm really happy of the work that I did on this. It appears that Wizards of the Coast funded the transfer of material. That Wizards of the Coast said, they probably, I'm, I'm making this up, but it's probably not I, I bet you it's true that wizards of the coast and critical role made a deal that said we want to put it on there and critical role didn't fund the development of the DD beyond version wizards of the coast paid for that development themselves and this actually helps wizards of the coast more than it helps critical role it certainly helps critical role because it means people now have access to it in DD beyond but critical role also gets to continue to sell it on their own platform which is a very key thing this isn't an exclusive license it's not like a dm guild situation in this case critical role darrington press can still sell the Taldorai Reborn on their own on their own platform, on their own website, in their own venues, along with this. It's a non-exclusive license. And that that is a good thing for them. So one of the things that I think about with this, and one of the, you know, I think about this a lot. And I know like people talk to me like, oh, this is just about D&D business stuff. But it really matters to DMs because it matters where we're going to be able to get our products. It matters which products we'll be able to use if we have players that are so dedicated to using D&D Beyond. How do we get to use other products that we're creating? There's a lot of reasons about why this matters a lot to DMs. Who can publish it? Where they have to publish it? What restrictions they're under for publishing? All of these things matter to those of us who are buying these products and want to use these products at our table. So one of the things I have is what I'm going to refer to as Mike's Little Candles. So the idea behind Mike's Little Candles, if you will, imagine for a moment that I have a windowsill. And on this windowsill, I have a bunch of little candles. Some of them are lit, some of them are not lit. And all of the ones that are lit are indications that Wizards of the Coast is doing right by the hobby and doing right by the industry. That they are they're being good partners in the industry. That they're not just doing something for their own benefit that is bringing greater control over the hobby, the fifth edition hobby in particular, but even 
even the larger RPG hobby, that they're not just bringing it in and sealing it behind their doors, but are instead being good partners with everybody else. So every one of those candles, if it's lit, is an indicator that Wizards of the Coast is being a good partner to, to role-playing games. Everyone that is not lit is either a potential for them to do so or something that they have taken away. Now, they haven't. I'll, I'll give a spoiler. They haven't, they haven't really taken anything away, but there's a few candles that are already lit. There are a few candles that they say they're going to light. And then there's some candles that I would love to see lit that they haven't said they're going to light, but I think would show that they are being good community members as well. So examples of the lit candles. What are the things that they have done that have been really good for the community overall, for the role-playing game industry overall? Releasing the 5.1 SRD into the Creative Commons is unilaterally a really, really good thing that they have done. It, they, have, they have released control over the 5.1 SRD, the fifth edition, all of the stuff that's in it to anybody to be able to publish material for it. That was a fantastic thing. Recently, I just talked about them putting the 5.1 SRD out under Creative Commons for four other languages, French, German, Italian, and Spanish. So it's now out under five different languages. That was a lot of expense for Wizards of the Coast to go through, and it was for the benefit of everybody because it's under a Creative Commons license. That means publishers that are publishing in these other languages have a already translated system reference document that they can use to build their own games without needing any further permission from Wizards of the Coast. That strengthens the hobby overall. They're continuing to release their main products as books physically. You can go and buy Big B's Big Book of Bad Guys, right? Or Big B's, what is it called? Big B's Presents Glory of the Giants. I remember the name. You can go buy it as a physical book. And that's good because whatever happens to the company, whatever they decide to go, you still always have that book. Right, That is probably the most solid form of material you can get. And that is a sign of a little candle. They haven't just said, oh, our next book is going to be digitally only. Right, We're going to do a big book, but it's going to be only digitally and only on D&D Beyond. That would be an example of that candle dying. That candle, the, the wick would go out and that'd be a bad sign. But they're not doing that. They're just still publishing books. They're currently continuing to release D&D products on Roll20 that you can buy Big B's Presents Glory of the Giants over on Roll20. You can buy Big B's Glory of the Giants over on Fantasy Grounds. So two other kind of competing platforms and they are releasing them on those platforms as well. That means you have three different options for digital platforms to be able to go buy versions of the book. Very good. Wizards is offering a non-exclusive license for third-party publishers in D&D Beyond. That is a candle that we have now seen lit. They have published the Tal'Darae campaign setting on D&D Beyond, and clearly that is not an exclusive license because they are still selling that book on the Darrington Press web store and in other venues. So that is an example that they're not saying you can only, if you're going to sell it on D&D Beyond, you can only sell it here. The DMs Guild is an example where that isn't the case. If you sell it on the DMs Guild, that's the only place you can sell it. What are some unlit candles that they said they're going to light? And there's really only two. One, they said that this year they're going to release the 3.5, the 3.5 system reference document under Creative Commons. Personally, I kind of don't care, right? That them putting out the 3.5 SRD, there's other material that's in the 3.5 SRD that isn't available in the 5.1 SRD, which means that you could sort of, publishers would have a wider range of potential D&D material they could pull from in order to build their own role-playing games or their own compatible games and things like that. So it's probably good, but it's not a huge deal. It's not as big as like the 5.1 SRD, but they said they were going to do it. And when they said they're going to do it, and they said they were going to do it this year. So that is an example of a candle. Does that candle on its own matter that much? No. Is it an indication of wizards starting to say, oh, well, people are kind of quieting down. Maybe we won't bother with this. Maybe. So we need to keep an eye on the candle. Are they, they said they were going to do this. It's for the benefit of the community. Are they actually going to do it? Did they do it? We can watch that and we can see it. 
Then another one, which unfortunately is a candle, we're not going to know if it's going to light for probably a year and a half to two years. And that would be Wizards releasing the 2024 rule update for five for fifth edition under a Creative Commons license. They said they were going to. One way or the other, they said we're going to release either something that updates the existing 5.1 SRD or a whole new SRD. We're going to do something. But Kyle talked about this when he went around and talked to everybody about it. And they said that they were going to do it. But of course, they have to actually put out the main rules and that's next year which means this candle is going to take some time to light so we don't know when it's going to come out but we need to keep an eye on it because it's really easy for us to become like either really cynical and say well i try they're never going to do that like i know they said they would but they're a big company and companies lie all the time and we're not no they said they were going to we need to hold them to that same way with the 3.5 srd they said they were going to do it hold it to them do they have an obligation to they do now they didn't they could have said, we're just doing this, but they said they were going to, and we want to hold them at their word and we want to trust that they're going to do it. So we need to keep an eye on these candles. So then there's some other unlit candles. These are candles that haven't lit and it'd be really nice if they would light up. I don't know that they will. They haven't said that they're going to do any of this stuff, but these are things that I think would be real good, clear signs that Wizards of the Coast has turned around from earlier this year and are being really, really good open members of the role-playing game community and care about the role-playing game hobby and the fifth edition hobby overall. These are the things I would love to see them do and I would give them very good credit if they would do these. One, start releasing D&D products on Foundry. Foundry is a very big, very popular virtual tabletop. It only has like SRD level material and it has a lot of other publishers that are published for Foundry, but there isn't official uh, D&D products on Foundry. I would like to see that. Put out official D&D products on Shard. I like Shard because it's one of the few VTT platforms where you can pull up the character builder independently of the rest of the virtual tabletop. They have a bunch of 5.1 SRD material. They have a bunch of material they publish themselves to help fill in the gaps, but they don't have official D&D material. Other publishers have published a Shard. I would like to see fifth edition D&D, actual D&D material, published to Shard in the same way it's published to Fantasy Grounds and Roll20. And then Demiplane. Demiplane says that they're going to have a fifth edition character builder. Adam Bradford, who was kind of the spearhead of the original D&D Beyond project, moved over to Demiplane. They are building character builders for a bunch of different systems over there. They say that they're going to have a fifth edition character builder up there soon. Embrace that. Put out the material that is available for D&D on Demiplane as well. This is good competition. It is a good way to ensure that every Everybody is working as hard as they can work on a fair playing field to be able to build interesting character builders. So I would love to see Wizards of the Coast support Demiplane as well as Shard and Foundry and Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds and D&D Beyond. And then we as customers have wide open options for it. I would love to see Wizards release an authenticated API for the data they have in D&D Beyond. What the hell is that, Mike? What, what API? What? What are you talking about? Basically, I want a way for other tools to be able to reach into D&D Beyond, check with their client, me, to see, do I own certain material? If I own that material, I should be able to use a different tool to pull my data from D&D Beyond and then view it in this other tool. So maybe I have a mobile character builder that's better. Maybe I have accessibility tools that make it easier for me to play. Maybe there's all different kinds of tools where I can go into that tool. The tool can authenticate that I have access to certain D&D Beyond material and then pull that data over into that new tool so that I can use it. There's already a precedent for this, and that's the Avre bot for Discord. In Discord, I can write some commands. I can use the Avre bot to pull data from D&D Beyond and view it in Discord. 
I just want to see an extension of that. I want to see an open version of that that isn't just Discord, but is also other tools and other ways to do it. There are unofficial ways to do this, but I want to see Wizards of the Coast Embrace one and do an official one. I would love them to see them release older 5e books in PDF on DriveThruRPG. If you cannot download a book, you don't own it. If you can't get a copy and put it on a USB stick and put it in a safe deposit box and then 10 years from now, plug it back in and get that book, regardless of the fact that the company went out of business, you don't really own it. When we buy books on D&D Beyond, we are renting them. We are leasing them from Wizards of the Coast. And it's at Wizards of the Coast purview to say, oh, sorry, we decided we don't want that anymore. Or we're going to change it. Or we're going to shift things around. Or we, hey, we went bankrupt or whatever. You're only leasing that and then it could go away. It's fine when we're licensing material from D&D Beyond and we recognize we're licensing it just so we have it as part of our character builder and it's really easy to use. That's fine. I want to own it. I bought it. It's 30 bucks. I want to be able to download it and have it on my machine. Now, I know it doesn't seem very likely they're going to do that with new books, but they could do it with the older books. The core books have been out for 10 years. Put out the core books as PDFs. Put out some of the early adventures as PDFs. Put out like everything that's like older than five years. It's been out long enough. The, probably the, the sales on it have probably dipped. Maybe the core books haven't dipped, but everything else has pretty much dipped. Put those out in PDFs so that we can download them and own them and we know they're safe. All of the rest of the Wizards of the Coast library from fourth edition back is now available in PDF and that's outstanding. I just want to see that extended to earlier fifth edition stuff. And then finally, how about you do the current stuff too. How about you make it so that when we buy a book on D&D Beyond, not only do we have it in an encyclopedic format on D&D Beyond, but we could also download the PDF so that we can have our own local copy and we feel safe about the material we bought from Wizards of the Coast. Those are examples of unlit candles, things Wizards hasn't done. I think if they did those things, the whole hobby would be stronger. I'd feel better about it. I feel like we would have a wider range of tools that we could use to support this wonderful hobby that we have and to support 5th edition. So that would be really good. I left a little section for the example of candles that have gone dark, things that they were doing that they go out. These are be bad signs. If there's indications like, yeah, turns out Big Bees isn't available on Roll20, right? Oh, we just, yeah, we haven't put out that. The minute they stop releasing stuff on other platforms, the minute they start to pull stuff back, the minute they start to put exclusive license deals on D&D Beyond, those are candles that were lit that go unlit. And that would be, those would be indicators of bad signs. Again, why does all this matter? It matters to us as DMs because if we like 5th edition, I love 5th edition. It is my favorite role-playing game of all time. I've played it for 10 years. I am not tiring of it. I'm playing multiple campaigns a week. I love 5th edition. And I also really love the incredible wealth of 5th edition material that we get from all kinds of different publishers. If any one company is taking too much control over 5th edition, it hurts the whole hobby. And Wizards of the Coast with D&D Beyond is probably in the strongest position to be able to have that grip on the hobby. The more people that use D&D Beyond, the more material gets released on D&D Beyond, the more people rely on it as their only source for either acquiring or using 5th edition material. That means one company now controls that amount of, of information. And I don't think that's healthy. I think it's better when we have lots of different things, when Wizards of the Coast is competing. And Kyle said this when Kyle Brinks was doing his big PR event, talking to everybody. He said, we want to compete on, I'm paraphrasing, but we want to compete in the open. We don't want to have special, they don't want to have monopolies and use the monopolies to be the way that they are better than everybody else. He wants to write products that are better than everybody else. 
Yeah, absolutely. I want everybody, I want them to write products that are better than everybody else. I want everybody to be striving to write products that are better than everybody else because all the products will get better. But if one company has a strangle and says, well, we can kind of do what we want because people have to come to D&D Beyond. It's the only place they can use it. So now it doesn't matter if other people are making subclasses. Those subclasses aren't in D&D Beyond, so they're not going to use them. Or they're only in D&D Beyond, so they can't use them. So that's what I'm really worried about. That's what the candles are about. The candles are all sitting on those still. I'm watching them. I'm seeing which ones are lit. I'm seeing which ones aren't lit. I'm seeing which ones go from dark to lit and which ones particularly go from lit to dark. And they that tells us what the health of the industry is and how well Wizards of the Coast is fulfilling their promise of being good stewards of D&D and good members of the role-playing game community. One of the things that was kind of interesting to me this past week, and I, I have this happen. So I think a lot of times as GMs, we often feel like, oh my God, my friends are coming over and I totally have anything ready. I need to spend a bunch of time. I actually had a patron who posted a question. I'll probably be talking about it in a future episode where he said he spent 24 hours a week preparing one session of his game, which is like a four hour session. That seemed like a lot of time focused on spending a session in the original lazy dungeon master i offered an approach that said you could do it in 15 minutes that's probably a little aggressive 15 minutes is is hard but i a half hour i have definitely prepped sessions in a half an hour and certainly i think an hour is often enough time to prep a four-hour session depending on the game depending on what you're doing depending on how much homework you have to do i don't think an hour is out of hand but one of the things that often makes me feel good about a game and i always had that pre-game nervousness oh my god i'm not ready i don't have what i need the game is going to fall flat i don't i I don't know where we're going or what we should be doing or all of this stuff. We all have that kind of doubt, I think. It's like performance anxiety, right? We're, we're worried about being in front of our friends and offering something that is going to be fun for them. And we want it to be good. And it, it makes our head sort of spiral out of control. But one of the things that really helps me get my head around it is just sitting back and really thinking about what the bare minimum is that I need to run a session of a game. Like, what do you really need? And one of the types of games that I love running more than everything else is dungeons. I love running dungeons. And I love running dungeons because they are clear and focused. You have boundaries. You know where they're going. You know, there's, it's, a, it's, it's really that sandbox kind of game. You don't have to worry about like, oh, if they take one path or another path or which part of the city are they going to go to or anything like that. Dungeons have, they're, they're refined in a way because of like the flowchart nature of a dungeon that there's only so many directions and paths that they can take. They, they fit really well. So I, I tend to really enjoy prepping dungeon adventures. And when you think about like, well, what do you need in order to run an adventure like that? If you're really like looking at all of the material that you've got and you're saying, what do I really need? And, and you know, the, the steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the eight steps are kind of designed around that idea of what you really need. But if you're going to refine it down, oh my God, I really just, you know, friends are coming over and I've got to have something ready. What do I need? The number, it really feels like the first thing you need is where is this game going to start? What's going to happen? That's step, step two of the eight steps of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. But that idea of like the game has to start somewhere. Something has to happen. Something has to draw the players out of the world and into this new one and get them started. Maybe it's an adventure hook. The very simple one is an NPC arrives and says, hey, I need help with this thing. I need you to recover this MacGuffin. I need you to go save my brothers who got lost in the sewers. I, you know, whatever. I want you to recover an old mysterious book before an evil cult gets it. You know, having that strong start be the hook for the adventure is a really good, easy approach. And you can go with just a format like this. An NPC needs the characters to perform a job at a location. Very, very simple. I need you to go to a place to get a thing. If your players are bought in at all, they'll grab on and they'll go. And 
so that that's probably the first thing. Then the second thing you need is the location itself. Where are they going to go? And what does that place look like? And that for me, the easiest thing to do for this is to jump over to DysonLogos.com, DysonLogos.blog, click on maps, and he's got 1,100 maps available for all different kinds of locations, all different kinds of places that you can see. And what I tend to do is I scroll through until I find the first map that makes sense for the situation that I've got. Lots of different maps that are available. You can even go and like spend, if you wanted to, this is not the easy thing to do, but one thing you could do is just go on your desktop computer and scan through them. And every time you find a map you like, go save it in a file folder. Get a 50 or 60 of them. Get a whole bunch of them. If you have a good pile of maps, think about different kinds of maps, tombs, crypts, caves, towers, keeps, castles, you know, go through a list and have like two or three different maps for each of the styles of maps that you need each of the types of locations that you need and keep those on hand it's a really good way to just like quickly have a map and you're really only doing that again like if for some reason and god i help me i hope it never happens that dyson logos.blog goes down for some reason you don't have the maps have a bunch of local ones that you've saved so find the first map that you like and you say yeah this map will do this the grotto beneath lazuni hill right really solid one it's got a mixture i love this map i think i've used this map i have used this map and i love this map it's really really great and you know this one's a good one because it's a mix of natural caves and a work structure so the idea is you could have some sort of place that is you know work stone a temple or an old laboratory or whatever that is buried under natural caves Really, really good, straightforward way to do it. But Dyson's map designs are just excellent. So then you've got your NPC needs the characters to go to a location in order to recover or do a thing. Maybe it's rescue somebody. Maybe it's kill somebody. Maybe it's steal something. Maybe it's find something. You know, you can decide. Lazy DM's companion and the, the actually the, the free sample from the Lazy DM's companion has a whole list of these kind of quest-like things that you can look at. We'll take a look at those in a second. But you now you have your map. And then what you can do, and this is what I did for a game that I ran yesterday. I printed a copy of it out on a sheet of paper. And I had this map printed out on a sheet of paper. And I took a Sharpie. And I just looked at the map and wrote one word that described what was in each of these rooms to give me an idea of what was there. And you might say, like, you know, trapped... A, a trapped bust, right? Like a, 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 a mechanical bust of someone's head that breathes out poison gas. You might just say like trapped bust and you write that here. You might say like stagnant water filled with oozes and you might, you know, write that down on it. You might say temple to an old forgotten God, right? Or sealed sarcophagi of elder evils, w whatever you want. But you, you basically for each room, you know, tr secret treasure hoard, you know, or trapped chests or whatever. And you can just, with a Sharpie, just write in these ideas into each of the locations for it. It shouldn't take you terribly long. You can use random tables to give you ideas if you're not really sure. But if you think about what the, this place used to be, and you've got those ideas of what, you know, then if you think about what the idea used to be and you have some tables that give you ideas of what might be in a chamber, the Dungeon Master's Guide, for example, actually has really good lists of these kind of chamber contents. And you can just sort of scan through and say, oh yeah, that makes sense and I'll drop that in here and write it on with a Sharpie. So now you have your strong start, which is an NPC comes to the characters and offers them a job in a location. You have the location and what's in the location, which also means the characters can now go in different directions and you're okay because you've already written down what things are there. Then you want to have like inhabitants. Who's there? And this could be a mixture of NPCs. It could be good guys. It could be bad guys. It could be, you know, shaky guys. That could be either be good guys or bad guys. I'm a big fan of like ghosts, 
that aren't immediately hostile makes sense for almost any location. It doesn't matter how old it is or whether it's been sealed up for a million years, a ghost could be there that has memories of the place. But then you can just make a list of who are the potential inhabitants for this place. You don't have to associate them with every room. Instead, you could just make a list, probably about eight different ones. So you don't necessarily need to put all of the NPCs or monsters in particular rooms. A lot of times GMs want to do that. They want to build like a room. They want to put interesting features in the room. They want to set monsters in there and that becomes an encounter and then they run it. The problem is like because of pacing and beats and stuff like that, or the characters go one direction instead of the other. Well, now you got to shift things around. So I find it's easier to have the locations filled out with your little like one named descriptions of what these locations are like or what might be there and then have a separate list of potential inhabitants you can almost think of it like a random encounter table but it doesn't have to be random you can just go down the list and say oh giant rats i think it's a good time for some giant rats or maybe this is a good time for them to meet the wandering ghost or maybe this is a good time for the ancient skeleton the skeletons in the ancient armor to come you know that is something that you need and really once you have that you're pretty well set now I, of course, think that having some secrets and clues on hand is also really important. That idea of what are some things the characters can learn while they're here. This could be bits of history about the location. It could be bits of information about the NPCs here. It could be something about the MacGuffin that they're going after, whether it's a hostage that's been picked picked up or whether it's something else you can sort of figure out what they would learn when the characters are going through here. I think that that list is really handy. And once you have that, you're kind of ready to go. You can use random tables for treasure. I use it all the time. It's really handy to have random random tables. And again, like story beats, you can decide like, okay, this is a good time for monetary treasure. This is a good time for a magic item. That gets into one of the other steps from Return, of course. So what we end up with is it kind of looks like the same as the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is for me is not bad because it means I came at it from a different angle. I'm still looking at it from the angle of like, what do I need in order to run my game? And it refines some of them. So instead of just saying like a strong start, I can say, well, the strong start is actually an NPC giving a quest to the characters to go to a location and do a thing. The locations are a map of the location with written tags for each of the rooms so that I know what's in those rooms. I have my list of, and I'm kind of mashing NPCs and monsters together. I have a list of inhabitants that could be good guys or bad guys or whatever, hostile people, not hostile people, wary people, whatever. And they're in that list. I might roll up some random treasure. I could either roll, I mean, now with random generators online, it's really easy to just roll up a couple of treasure parcels and drop it into your notes. So you've got it. I find that to be really, really useful. But that's kind of all you need. And once you have that, you know that you generally have enough to make a fun session for your group. So I really, I really think that it's worthwhile. Maybe the steps you have are different than mine. If you think about the bare minimum that you need to have on hand to run a fun game, fun game for your group, I'm all ears. You can send me an email. You can leave me a comment. Let me know what you think about what the bare minimum is to be able to, to, to run a game. Every month... On the Sly Flourish Patreon, we do a Patreon Q&A. I put up a new thread, and anybody that's a member of the Sly Flourish Patreon can ask questions in that thread. I answer every question every Friday morning over on that Patreon, on, on that Q&A, and then some of them I take and I bring over so that we can talk about on this show, or they actually become independent articles or videos of their own. Maya W. says, as a DM, what would be the best way to run a campaign that is more roleplay-focused? 
So this is an interesting idea. If we think about our 5th edition style fantasy role-playing games, they kind of fall, 5th edition in particular talks about the three pillars, role-playing, exploration, and combat. And that the game is sort of built of these three major components. You have people that you talk to, places you explore, things that you learn, and monsters that you fight. And if you want to kind of expand out on the role-play thing, there's a few things you can do. But one is make sure your players are on board. Because your players may not be as interested in having a more roleplay focused game as you are. Or even harder, some of your players really want to have a deep roleplay focus and some of them don't. And honestly, the best way when you have a situation like that is make sure there is a balance. Make sure that you have some nice, good, juicy roleplay scenes and you have scenes where they're doing the other pillars that you're doing the other pillars as well, your exploration and, and combat scenes. It's probably rare to find a group where everybody wants to do one thing right? Where everybody's into a deeper role play session. But if you do find yourself an opportunity where you want to steer towards more role playing, well, then what you really need to do is spend more time with the NPCs. And this is where having like those different factions, when I talk about the three, having the three fronts, right? These three villains or these three forces of nature that are sort of manipulating the whole rest of the situation. Maybe you have more than three, or maybe you always have three, but even if one falls out, falls out of play, you have a new one that comes in. One of the things I think works really well for like a deep, fun role play situation is thinking about what I call like pool table D&D. The idea that every ball on a pool table is an NPC and the play, the characters are one of these balls on the, on the, on the pool, pool table. And when you crash it in, it crashes into one or more numbers of these other NPCs who then crash into each other. They roll around. Some of them bang into one another. Some of them go into pockets and disappear, but things are constantly changing. And to me, really good stories come from the chaos of these clashes of NPCs. And it could be a NPC to NPC clash. It could also be two NPCs that clash together because the characters did something. A practical example would be the adventure Princes of the, the Apocalypse. In the adventure Princes of the Apocalypse, there are four different factions that are all in like a cold war with one another. You have air and fire and earth and water, all of these different elemental cults that are battling against one another. And they're all trying to get the one up so that their elemental prince is going to be the one elevated. As the characters start to take out the elemental princes, as they start to take out the groups, they might take out one group before they've made it too far. They sort of beat the main villain. Then the other three sort of elevate. And then they get rid of the other th the third one. They actually don't elevate. They actually go deeper. That when you defeat one cult, the other three cults go a level deeper. You defeat the next cult and the remaining two cults go a level deeper. And you defeat the third cult and the last cult goes all the way to the bottom. And their elemental prince is the one that pops up. And then the characters fight that elemental prince. So at the beginning of the campaign, you really don't know which one of the cults is going to be the one to be victorious. And it's all based on the fact that the character Characters have taken out the other ones. So that's kind of an interesting way that you could, you know, it's pretty simple in that perspective, but it's an interesting way to watch these villains that are kind of colliding with one another or these NPC groups and factions that are colliding against one another. And the only really good way to do that is to write them down understand who they are, what their motivation is, what quests are they going on that they're trying to accomplish, and then how are those getting complicated by the actions of the characters or the actions of another villain or NPC that got affected by the characters. And then following those threads. And then while you're doing your prep each session, you say, let's take a look at these villains, see what's going on. And, and then how does that affect in a role play? Well, now you've got all of these players out there, all of these NPCs that the, the players are dealing with, all the ones that they're talking to or hearing from or stories that they're picking up from. And that that builds a sort of like rich tapestry of interwoven NPC plot lines, which is a really good 
fertile ground for good role-playing based sessions. Maya, I hope that helps. Julia says, after a recent session, I realized my biggest pitfall as a DM is rushing. I have to get, uh, I have a lot to get through and our sessions go only three to four hours. So I end up not giving as much time to descriptions or character moments as I should. We don't meet as often as we like, and I have a player moving in a few months. So I'm trying to get through the story I have prepped. How can I slow down while still collaboratively telling a story in a satisfying way? So like the previous question, one thing to ask is, are you, how do your players feel about it? Do they feel that you're rushing things? Do they feel like they're missing opportunities to hear more about the narration of what's going on? Do they feel, do, do they really feel, feel like, because I'll tell you, pacing is definitely a, num- a big problem for GMs a lot of time. Monty Cook talks about pacing being one of the most important elements that a GM can hang on to, that a GM can, can work on, other than getting a group together regularly, which is the hardest part of this whole hobby. And Usually pacing is not the DM being too fast. It's almost always the opposite. It's almost always that things are moving too slowly. There is, I think Wolfgang Bauer talked about in an essay in one of the world, the Kobold Guides to World Building. I think it was Kobold Guide to World Building or game design might've been where he said that he heard from somebody who played a role-playing game who said it's five, it's 10 minutes of story in a four hour bag, right? And that it was so slow that like, you know, the amount of stuff that happened, the pacing wasn't great. And if you think about like movies, if you look at the kinds of scenes we have in our role-playing games and then look at how movies treat it, movies are like, we just cut stuff. We just remove, remove stuff. So I, I actually, I would, I would challenge you on whether or not you think that your biggest pitfall is that you, is that you're, you're, you're rushing too much. I would ask your players how they feel about it. Like just ask them straight up. How do you feel about the pacing of the game? Is the pacing right? Or do you feel like it's rushed? And then see what they think. But I bet you they're going to say, no, no, it's good, right? Because generally players are pretty happy most of the time anyway. But but I bet you that rushing is not really the issue. Now, maybe if you feel like that you want to put more time and attention in certain character moments, then you, know, you can kind of prep that and think about it. Now, the second part of your question, though, is that you have a player moving, so you have a limited amount of sessions left, and how are you going to manage to get through everything? Cut the boring middle. This is something I wish more DMs did, especially organized play DMs, where they feel like they have to run everything that is in a module. You are under no obligation anywhere to run everything that is in a module that you have to run. Your only obligation is running a fun game for your players in the time you have. That is the only obligation you have. A lot of times, adventures have filler. A lot of times, adventures have things in there that maybe they're not even like written there. Like they're, you know, they're not written to be filler, but you look at it and you're like, yeah, it's boring. Anything you see that you're not excited about, cut. And if you have only a few sessions left, you only have a few months until you're going to run the end of this, think about the ending and think about how fast you can get to that ending. What is critical? What has to happen for you to get to that ending? Hopefully that if you think about like breaking down the sessions that you're going to follow through to get to that ending, hopefully it's half of the number of sessions you actually have. Hopefully the number of sessions you need is half the number of sessions that you have. If it's equal to, you're probably going to go over because it's going to turn out they're going to take longer than you think. But if you said like, pretend you only had half the number of sessions, how would you break it down? And that will give you an idea of what kind of stuff you can cut, what kind of stuff you can go. One thing I heard about with the Planescape adventure is I hear the Planescape adventure has like a 10 level jump in it. Don't be worried about doing that. Have a montage in the middle. Have a scene. I was watching a TV show. I'm watching uh, All For All Mankind on Apple Plus, and it's awesome. And one of the things it does is huge time jumps, lots of them. I'm a big sucker for time jumps. I love time jumps in my role-playing games. I love it in my TV shows and my movies and everything. 
time jumps, right? You skip, skip parts, jump to the next session. Once they've made a major move and the next part is time, jump forward and see. But that idea of starting with the end, starting with what you know you have to do, and then working your way back to make sure that you're only focused on the things you have to accomplish to get that campaign to finish and cut the boring middle. Right. And you will be able to, you, you, you probably you might have some time to add some stuff back in again, if you find out you have time, but keep to that schedule, know where you need to be so that when you're saying, okay, I'm three sessions out, they better be at the front doors of Thanatos. If we're ever going to face Orcus, right? I need to be, they need to be in Thanatos three sessions before the end of the game, because they got to go to Orcus's palace and fight him there. So that's what I would recommend for that, Julia. But again, I bet you that your I bet you that your timing is probably better than you better than you might think. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in role playing games. If you enjoyed this show and you want to get access to all of the different things that I do, if you want to see articles I've written and tips that I offer and videos that I produce, the best way to do that is to subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. There's a link in the show notes. You get a free adventure generator PDF and a free weekly RPG related email it's a fantastic deal I, I spend a lot of time trying to make sure that 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 is really good that's a really good service you can also join me on patreon i have a sly first patreon we have access to all kinds of different things like the patreon q a the city of arches source book uncovered secrets volume one and two a bunch of exclusive adventures dedicated discorded server and a whole lot more and you can pick up any of my books at the sly flourish bookstore those are all available all the links for all of those are in the show notes below thank you all so much have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game